Welcome back to my relaxing literature podcast. I'm very excited tonight to introduce you to a special guest reader, my niece, who introduced me to Frankenstein and inspired me to make that the first book that I read for my podcast, is here with me, and she is going to be continuing our reading. Tonight, we are beginning volume two of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. And this will be chapter one of volume two. Hey everyone, um, good evening or good morning or good afternoon, wherever you're listening to this too. Um, Frankenstein truly is one of my favorite books. Um, I study English, specifically medieval English, and this is a bit late in history for me, but um, I have done a bit of reading on Frankenstein. It's truly one of my favorite books to read and reread and do research on, so I hope that it will be as relaxing for you to read as it is for me to read and study. So this is going to be Volume 2, Chapter 1 of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Nothing is more painful to the human mind than after the feelings have been worked up by a quick succession of events the dead calmness of inaction and certainty which follows and deprives the soul both of hope and fear. Justine died. She rested, and I was alive. The blood flowed freely in my veins, but a weight of despair and remorse pressed on my heart, which nothing could remove. Sleep fled from my eyes. I wandered like an evil spirit, for I had committed deeds of mischief beyond description, horrible, and more, much more, I persuaded myself, was yet behind. Yet my heart overflowed with kindness and the love of virtue. I had begun life with benevolent intentions and thirsted for the moment when I should put them in practice and make myself useful to my fellow beings. Now all was blasted. Instead of that serenity of conscience which allowed me to look back upon the past with self-satisfaction and from hence to gather promise of new hopes, I was seized by remorse and the sense of guilt which hurried me away to a hell of intense tortures such as no language can describe. The state of mind preyed upon my health, which had entirely recovered from the first shock it had sustained. I shunned the face of man. All sound of joy or complacency was torture to me. Solitude was my consolation, deep, dark, death-like solitude. My father observed with pain the alteration perceptible in my disposition and habits, and endeavored to reason with me on the folly of giving away to a moderate grief. Do you think, Victor, said he, that I do not suffer also? No one could love a child more than I loved your brother. Tears came into his eyes as he spoke. But is it not a duty to the survivors that we should refrain from augmenting their unhappiness by an appearance of immoderate grief? It is also a duty vowed to yourself, for excessive sorrow prevents improvement or enjoyment, or even the discharge of daily usefulness, without which no man is fit for society. This advice, although good, was totally inapplicable to my case. I should have been the first to hide my grief and console my friends, 
if remorse had not mingled its bitterness with my other sensations. Now I could only answer my father with a look of despair and endeavor to hide myself from his view. About this time, we retired to our house at Bellerive. This change was particularly agreeable to me. The shutting of the gates regularly at 10 o'clock and the impossibility of remaining on the lake after that hour had rendered our residence within the walls of Geneva very irksome to me. I was now free. Often, after the rest of the family had retired for the night, I took the boat and passed many hours upon the water. Sometimes, with my sail set, I was carried by the wind, and sometimes, after rowing into the middle of the lake, I left the boat to pursue its own course and gave way to my own miserable reflections. I was often tempted when all was at peace around me, and I, the only unquiet thing that wandered restless in a scene so beautiful and heavenly, if I except some bat or the frogs whose harsh and interrupted croaking had heard only when I approached the shore. Often, I say, I was tempted to plunge into the silent lake that the waters might close over me in my calamities forever. But I was resisted. When I thought of the heroic and suffering Elizabeth whom I tenderly loved and whose existence was bound up in mine, I thought also of my father and surviving brother. Should I, by my base desertion, leave them exposed and unprotected to the malice of the fiend whom I let loose among them? At these moments I wept bitterly and wished that peace would revisit my mind, only that I might afford them consolation and happiness. But that could not be. Remorse extinguished every hope. I had been the author of unalterable evils, and I lived in daily fear lest the monster whom I had created should perpetrate some new wickedness. I had an obscure feeling that all was not over, and that he would still commit some signal crime which by its enormity should also efface the collection of my past. There was always scope for fear, so long as anything I loved remained behind. My abhorrence of this fiend cannot be conceived. When I thought of him, I gnashed my teeth, my eyes became inflamed, and I ardently wished to extinguish that life which I had so thoughtlessly bestowed. When I reflected on his crimes and malice, my hatred and revenge burst all bounds of moderation. I would have made a pilgrimage to the highest peak of the Andes could I, when there, have precipitated him to their base. I wished to see him again, that I might wreak the utmost extent of anger on his head and avenge the deaths of William and Justine. Our house was the house of mourning. My father's health was deeply shaken by the horror of the recent events. Elizabeth was sad and desponding. She no longer took delight in her ordinary occupations. All pleasure seemed her sacrilege toward the dead. Eternal woe and tears, she then thought, was the just tribute she could pay to innocence so blasted and destroyed. She was no longer that happy creature who, in earlier youth, wandered with me on the banks of the lake and talked with ecstasy of our future prospects. She had become grave and often conversed on the inconstancy of fortune and the instability of human life. When I reflect, my dear cousin, said she, on the miserable death of Justine Moritz, I no longer see the world and its works as they before appeared to me. 
Before, I looked upon the accounts of vice and injustice that I read in books or heard from others as tales of ancient days or imaginary evils. At least they were remote and more familiar to reason than to the imagination. But now, misery has come home, and men appear to me as monsters thirsting for each other's blood. Yet I am certainly unjust. Everybody believed that poor girl to be guilty, and if she could have committed that crime for which she suffered, assuredly she would have been the most depraved of human creatures. For the sake of a few jewels, to have murdered the son of her benefactor and friend, a child whom she had nursed from its birth and appeared to love as if it had been her own, I could not consent to the death of any human being but certainly I should have thought such a creature unfit to remain in the society of men. Yet she was innocent. I know, I feel she was innocent. You are of the same opinion, and that confirms me. Alas, Victor, when falsehood can look so like the truth, who can assure themselves of certain happiness? I feel as if I were walking on the edge of a precipice towards which thousands are crowding and endeavoring to plunge me into the abyss. William and Justine were assassinated, and their murderer escapes. He walks around the world free, and perhaps respected. But even if I were condemned to suffer on this scaffold for the same crimes, I would not change places with such a wretch. I listened to this discourse with the extremest agony. I, not indeed, but in effect, was the true murderer. Elizabeth read my anguish and my continence and kindly taking my hand said, my dearest cousin, you must calm yourself. These events have affected me, God knows how deeply, but I am not so wretched as you are. There is an expression of despair and sometimes of revenge in your countenance that makes me tremble. Be calm, my dear Victor. I would sacrifice my life to your peace. We surely shall be happy, quiet in our native country and not mingling in the world. What can disturb our tranquility? She shed tears as she said this, distrusting the very solace that she gave. But at the same time she smiled, that she might chase away the fiend that lurked in my heart. My father, who saw in the unhappiness that was painted in my face only an exaggeration of that sorrow which I might naturally feel, thought that an amusement suited to my taste would be the best means of restoring to me my wonted serenity. It was for this cause that he removed to the country, and induced by the same motive, he now proposed that we should all make an excursion to the Valley of Shaman. I had been there before, but Elizabeth and Ernest never had, and both had often expressed an earnest desire to see the scenery of this place, which had been described to them as so wonderful and sublime. Accordingly, we departed from Geneva on this tour about the middle of the month of August nearly two months after the death of Justine. The weather was uncommonly fine, and if mine had been a sorrow to be chased away by any fleeting circumstance, this excursion would certainly have had the effect intended by my father. As it was, I was somewhat interested in the scene. It sometimes lulled, although it could not extinguish my grief. During the first day, we traveled in a carriage, in the morning, we had seen the mountains at a distance toward which we gradually ascended. We perceived that the valley through which we wound and which was formed by the river Arve, which course we followed, 
closed in upon us by degrees, and when the sun had set, we beheld immense mountains and precipices overhanging us on every side, and heard the sound of the river raging among rocks, and the dashing of waterfalls around. The next day, we pursued our journey upon mules, and as we ascended still higher, the valley assumed a more magnificent and astonishing character. Ruined castles hanging on the precipices of the tiny mountains, the impetuous arve and cottages every here and there peeping forth among the trees formed a scene of singular beauty. But it was augmented and rendered sublime by the mighty Alps, whose white and shining pyramids and domes towered above all as belonging to another earth, the inhabitations of another race of beings. We passed the bridge of Pelissier, where the ravine which the river forms opened before us, and we began to ascend the mountain that overhangs it. Soon after, we entered the valley of Chamonix. This valley is more wonderful and sublime, but not so beautiful and picturesque as that of Sorel, through which we had just passed. The high and snowy mountains were its immediate boundaries, but we saw no more ruined castles and fertile fields. Immense glaciers approached the road. We heard the rumbling thunder of the falling avalanche and marked the smoke of its passage. Mont Blanc, the supreme magnificent Mont Blanc, raised itself from the surrounding Argiles, and its tremendous dome overlooked the valley. During this journey, I sometimes joined Elizabeth and exerted myself to point out to her the various beauties of the scene. I often suffered my mule to lag behind and indulged in the misery of reflection. At other times, I spurred on the animal before my companions, that I might forget them, the world, and more of all myself. When at a distance, I alighted and threw myself on the grass, weighed down by my horror and despair. At eight in the evening, I arrived at Chamonix. My father and Elizabeth were very much fatigued. Ernest, who accompanied us, was delighted and in high spirits. The only circumstance that detracted from this pleasure was the south wind and the rain that remained to promise for the next day. We retired early to our apartments, but not to sleep. At least, I did not. I remained many hours at the window, watching the pallid lightning that played above Mont Blanc and listening to the rushing of the Arve, which ran below my window. Thank you for joining me for another relaxing literature podcast. I hope you've enjoyed our special guest reader tonight. If you are enjoying this podcast, please consider donating to help me improve the quality and please follow me on Instagram at Relaxing Literature. Chapter 2 The next day, contrary to the prognostications of our guides, was fine, although clouded. We visited the source of the Virion and rode about the valley until evening. These sublime and magnificent scenes afforded me the greatest consolation that I was capable of receiving. They elevated me from all littleness of feeling, and although they did not remove my grief, they subdued and tranquilized it. In some degree, also, they diverted my mind from the thoughts over which it had brooded for the last month. I returned in the evening, fatigued but less unhappy, and conversed with my family with more cheerfulness than had been my custom for some time. My father was pleased, and Elizabeth overjoyed. 
My dear cousin, said she, you do see what happiness you diffuse when you are happy. Do not relapse again. The following morning, the rain poured down in torrents, and thick mists hid the summits of the mountains. I rose early, but felt unusually melancholy. The rain depressed me, my old feelings recurred, and I was miserable. I knew how disappointed my father would be by this sudden change, and I wished to avoid him until I had recovered myself so far as to be enabled to conceal those feelings that overpowered me. I knew they would remain that day at the inn, and as I had ever inured myself to rain, moisture, and cold, I resolved to go alone to the summit of Montenvert. I remembered the effect that the view of the tremendous and ever-moving glacier had produced on my mind when I first saw it. It had then filled me with a sublime ecstasy that gave wings to the soul and allowed it to soar from the obscure world to light and joy. The sight of the awful and majestic in nature had indeed always the effect of solemnizing my mind and causing me to forget the passing cares of life. I determined to go alone, for I was well acquainted with the path, and the presence of another would destroy the solitary grandeur of the scene. The ascent is precipitous, but the path is cut in continual and short windings which enable you to surmount the perpendicularity of the mountain. It is a scene terrifically desolate. In a thousand spots, the traces of the winter avalanche may be perceived, where trees lie broken and strewed on the ground, some entirely destroyed, others bent, leaning upon the jutting rocks of the mountain, or transversely upon other trees. The path, as you ascend higher, is intersected by ravines of snow, down which stones continually roll from above. One of them is particularly dangerous, as the slightest sound, such as even speaking in a loud voice, produces a concussion of air sufficient to draw destruction upon the head of the speaker. The pines are not tall or luxuriant, but they are somber, and add an air of severity to the scene. I looked on the valley beneath. Vast mists were rising from the rivers which ran through it, and curling in thick wreaths around the opposite mountains, whose summits were hid in uniform clouds, while rain poured from the dark sky and added to the melancholy impression I received from the objects around me. Alas! Why does man boast of sensibilities superior to those apparent in the brute? It only renders them more necessary beings. If our impulses were confined to hunger, thirst, and desire, we might be nearly free. But now we are moved by every wind that blows, and a chance word or scene that that word may convey to us. We rest. A dream has power to poison sleep. We rise. One wandering thought pollutes the day. We feel, conceive, or reason, laugh or weep, embrace fond woe, or cast our cares away. It is the same, for, be it joy or sorrow, the path of its departure still is free. Man's yesterday may ne'er be like its morrow. Not may endure, but mutability. It was nearly noon when I arrived at the top of the ascent, for some time I sat upon the rock that overlooks the sea of ice. A mist covered both that and the surrounding mountains. Presently a breeze dissipated the cloud, and I descended upon the glacier. The surface is very uneven, 
rising like the waves of a troubled sea, descending low and interspersed by rifts that sink deep. The field of ice is almost a league in width, but I spent nearly two hours in crossing it. The opposite mountain is a bare perpendicular rock. From the side where I now stood, Montenvert was exactly opposite. At the distance of a league, and above it, rose Mont Blanc in awful majesty. I remained in a recess of the rock, gazing on this wonderful and stupendous scene. The sea, or rather the vast river of ice, wound among its dependent mountains, whose aerial summits hung over its recesses. Their icy and glittering peaks shone in the sunlight over the clouds. My heart, which was before sorrowful, now swelled with something like joy. I exclaimed, Wandering spirits, if indeed you wander, and do not rest in your narrow beds, allow me this faint happiness, or take me, as your companion, away from the joys of life. As I said this, I suddenly beheld the figure of a man, at some distance, advancing towards me with superhuman speed. He bounded over the crevices in the ice, among which I had walked with caution. His stature also, as he approached, seemed to exceed that of man. I was troubled. A mist came over my eyes, and I felt a faintness seize me, but I was quickly restored by the cold gale of the mountains. I perceived, as the shape came nearer, a sight tremendous and abhorred, that it was the wretch whom I had created. I trembled with rage and horror, resolving to wait his approach, and then close with him in mortal combat. He approached, his countenance bespoke bitter anguish combined with disdain and malignity, while its unearthly ugliness rendered it almost too horrible for human eyes. But I scarcely observed this. Anger and hatred had at first deprived me of utterance, and I recovered only to overwhelm him with words expressive of furious detestation and contempt. Devil, I exclaimed, do you dare approach me? And do not you fear the fierce vengeance of my arm wreaked upon your miserable head? Be gone, vile insect, or rather stay that I may trample you to dust. And oh, that I could, with the extinction of your miserable existence, restore those victims whom you have so diabolically murdered. I expected this reception, said the demon. All men hate the wretched. How then must I be hated, who am miserable beyond all living things? Yet you, my creator, detest and spurn me, thy creature, to whom thou art bound by ties only dissoluble by the annihilation of one of us. You purpose to kill me. How dare you sport thus with life? Do your duty towards me, and I will do mine towards you and the rest of mankind. If you will comply with my conditions, I will leave them and you at peace. But if you refuse, I will glut the maw of death until it be satiated with the blood of your remaining friends. Abhorred monster! Fiend that thou art! The tortures of hell are too mild a vengeance for thy crimes. Wretched devil, you reproach me with your creation. Come on, then, that I may extinguish the spark which I so negligently bestowed. My rage was without bounds. I sprang on him, impelled by all the feelings which can arm one being against the existence of another. He easily eluded me and said, Be calm. I entreat you to hear me, 
before you give vent to your hatred on my devoted head. Have I not suffered enough that you seek to increase my misery? Life, although it may only be an accumulation of anguish, is dear to me, and I will defend it. Remember, thou hast made me more powerful than thyself. My height is superior to thine, my joints more supple. But I will not be tempted to set myself in opposition to thee. I am thy creature, and I will be even mild and docile to my natural lord and king, if thou wilt also perform thy part, the which thou owest me. O Frankenstein, be not equitable to every other, and trample upon me alone, to whom thy justice and even thy clemency and affection is most due. Remember that I am thy creature. I ought to be thy Adam, but I am rather the fallen angel whom thou drivest from joy for no misdeed. Everywhere I see bliss, from which I alone am irrevocably excluded. I was benevolent and good. Misery made me a fiend. Make me happy, and I shall again be virtuous. Be gone. I will not hear you. There can be no community between you and me. We are enemies. Be gone, or let us try our strength in a fight in which one must fall. How can I move thee? Will no entreaties cause thee to turn a favorable eye upon thy creature, who implores thy goodness and compassion? Believe me, Frankenstein, I was benevolent. My soul glowed with love and humanity. But am I not alone, miserably alone? You, my creator, abhor me. What hope can I gather from your fellow creatures, who owe me nothing? They spurn and hate me. The desert mountains and dreary glaciers are my refuge. I have wandered here many days. The caves of ice, which I only do not fear, are a dwelling to me, and the only one which man does not grudge. These bleak skies I hail, for they are kinder to me than your fellow beings. If the multitude of mankind knew of my existence, they would do as you do, and arm themselves for my destruction. Shall I not hate them who abhor me? I will keep no terms with my enemies. I am miserable, and they shall share my wretchedness. Yet it is in your power to recompense me, and to deliver them from an evil which it only remains for you to make so great that not only you and your family, but thousands of others shall be swallowed up in the whirlwinds of its rage. Let your compassion be moved, and do not disdain me. Listen to my tale. When you have heard that, abandon or commiserate me, as you shall judge that I deserve. But hear me, the guilty are allowed, by human laws, bloody as they may be, to speak their own defense before they are condemned. Listen to me, Frankenstein. You accuse me of murder, and yet you would, with a satisfied conscience, destroy your own creature. Oh, praise the eternal justice of man, yet I ask you not to spare me. Listen to me, and then, if you can, and if you will, destroy the work of your hands. Why do you call to my remembrance circumstances of which I shudder to reflect that I have been the miserable origin and author? Cursed be the day, abhorred devil, in which you first saw light. Cursed, although I curse myself, be the hands that formed you. You have made me wretched beyond expression. You have left me no power to consider whether I am just to you or not. Be gone. Relieve me from the sight of your detested form. 
Thus I relieve thee, my creator, he said, and placed his hated hands before my eyes, which I flung from me with violence. Thus I take from thee a sight which you abhor. Still thou canst listen to me, and grant me thy compassion. By the virtues that I once possessed, I demand this from you. Hear my tale, it is long and strange, and the temperature of this place is not fitting to your fine sensations. Come to the hut upon the mountain. The sun is yet high in the heavens, before it descends to hide itself behind yon snowy precipices and illuminate another world. You will have heard my story and can decide. On you it rests, whether I quit forever the neighborhood of man and lead a harmless life, or become the scourge of your fellow creatures and the author of your own speedy ruin. As he said this, he led the way across the ice. I followed. My heart was full, and I did not answer him, but, as I proceeded, I weighed the various arguments that he had used, and determined at least to listen to his tale. I was partly urged by curiosity, and compassion confirmed my resolution. I had hitherto supposed him to be the murderer of my brother, and I eagerly sought a confirmation or denial of this opinion. For the first time, also, I felt what the duties of a creator toward his creature were, and what I ought to render him be happy before I complained of his wickedness. These motives urged me to comply with his demand. We crossed the ice, therefore, and descended to the opposite rock. The air was cold, and the rain began to descend. We entered the hut, the fiend with an air of exultation, I with a heavy heart and depressed spirits. But I consented to listen, and, seating myself by the fire which my odious companion had lighted, he thus began his tale. Thank you for joining me for another relaxing literature podcast. This has been Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, Volume 2, Chapters 1 and 2. If you are enjoying this podcast, please consider donating to help me improve the quality, and please follow me on Instagram at Relaxing Literature.